night. The Academy Awards are just around the corner. If you get a Grammy, a Tony, and an Emmy, and an Academy Award, you have a what? An EGOT. And there's like 10 people in the history of the world who have gotten all four. What does greatness look like? A billionaire? They tend to be a dime a dozen these days. We project in two years that we'll have the world's first trillionaire. Guess who that might be? Mr. Musk. The ability to wage war. Does that make us great? The ability to have a strong military. Does that make us great? To be the greatest country. Our passport. Does that make us great? We think of sports, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Some of us are Tom Brady fans, others not so much. Greatness can look like political power, right? Not sure I can endorse any politician as great, but yes, some would argue political power makes you great. Who is the greatest? Um, this spread by Rolex, uh, the famous watchmaker attempting to sell more watches, outlines great women. And at the top of the list is Mercedes Glitz. Um, Mercedes was the first woman to swim across the English Channel. In the second frame is Lindsey Vaughn. Lindsey Vaughn is a distant cousin of mine, so that's my claim to greatness. Um, Garbine Morgazia, she is a tennis player. Sonia Yoncheva, she is an opera singer. Grace Kelly, that's a more familiar name perhaps. Sylvia Earle was an explorer and deep sea diver. Lexi Thompson is a golfer. All of these individuals are great. Kohida Torre is a Senegalese dancer who is known for her interpretive dance. And this Chinese woman by the name of Yuja Wan. Check this out. This is greatness. <laughs> Absolutely amazing, right? And these are the types of things that we think of when we ask the question, what does greatness look like? Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, the disciples have a similar question. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the big shot? Who is going to be on top? Who is this directed towards? We might argue it's directed for the church, right? Okay, sure. I would argue that's a little bit of an implication, right? 
Because what does the text say? The text doesn't say in verse 1, who is greatest in the church, or even the Greek word ekklesia that we translate into church. The disciples are asking, who is great in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus doesn't correct them and say, no, it's great in the church. Now, for the careful observer, this word ecclesia, you found it in chapter 16 a few weeks ago. You'll find it again tonight in verse 17. So I'm not saying this isn't about the church or isn't applying to the church, but I want to think that the kingdom is more than the church. It's more than just the called ones, more than the ecclesia. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than that because the kingdom of heaven includes God, not just the people of God. You might argue that's a fine point, okay? And that's fine to argue that that's a fine point, but I think it's an important distinction because we often live with this perspective that we're something incredibly special, and we are and we're not. We're created in the image of God. We have great value as beings created in the image of God. It's why we value human life from the very youngest part of life to the very oldest part of life. And in the same breath, we often inflate our own value. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than me. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than the church because it includes God. At any rate, he answers the question. You want to know who's great in the kingdom of heaven? Greatness looks like this. And then he tells five or six or seven stories, depending upon how you slice it up. We'll kind of group it into five sections, although within a couple of the sections, there's a couple of fine points that you could subdivide. Five stories, parables, examples, illustrations of what greatness looks like. They're equal in weight. That would be my contention. And again, you can disagree with this. I mean, like there's one commentator that I read that said, no, this is much more about what love looks like, love in the positive and love in the negative, love in the restricting oneself, one in the engagement. And that's fine. We can wrestle with that. Five stories, parables, examples, illustrations of what greatness looks like, equal in weight. Now, some of them, when you read them, you'll be like, oh, that's pretty easy for me. I can do that one. I can see the marginalized. I can see the, I can see the hurting folks. We'll gravitate to our strengths. But there are five different examples equal in weight, and if we're good in one, we might be challenged to up the ante in some other ones. What does the heaven, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? It's a question that the disciples asked in the first century of Jesus, and certainly having Jesus face to face would be of great benefit when asking any question. Jesus answers the question, which is even greater benefit for us. But it's not a question that should be simply located in the first century. 
I would argue this would be one of those questions that we could ask every day of our life. That you could begin tomorrow, write the question on your mirror, borrow someone's lipstick, you can probably find some in your house, if not, we can get you some, and write on the mirror, what 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 does greatness in the kingdom of heaven look like? What does greatness look like as I seek to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? We might also add, before we embark too deeply in chapter 18, there's not going to be a lot of new information here. In fact, probably for the person who's even casually engaged with the Bible, when you study the Bible, you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of knew that. Or there's something that rings true, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There's not like a brand new concept, okay? There's not a, there's not a, no, that, 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 yeah, that resonates or that's familiar. And while the text tonight will challenge us, there shouldn't be surprises here, right? It's simple. It's repetitious. And it's kind of an inversion of how our world works. If the world says these are the things that are most important, then the book of Matthew, Matthew 18, the entirety of the Bible would say, okay, but that's not the things that the kingdom of heaven finds important. Dude, I'm rolling. All right, come on, bring it on. No, I'm here. Fair enough. Yes, who's most important? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that question comes out of that. I think they're like saying, okay, what does it mean to be the most important? What does greatness in the kingdom of heaven look like? And the world around us defines greatness like a phenomenal piano player. And truly, she is. Matthew 18 will turn that on its ear. See what I did there? Piano player, listen to piano music. Do you like that? It just gives me a little happiness inside. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, glad you asked, and here's what it looks like. Not a lot of new information here. It shouldn't take us by surprise. It's simple, it's repetition repetitious, and it's an inversion of the standard operating procedure of the world. First up, the kiddos. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him, actually the him is a translation challenge because child is, is gender neutral, so we don't know if the child was a boy child or a girl child. Fine point, perhaps. 
And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you churn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, you might argue this is two separate ideas of what greatness looks like. Fair enough. That's fine. I'm comfortable with that. First up is the kiddos, the example of a child. Become like a child. The disciples, to Russ's point, thinking highly of themselves, right? I want to be the greatest. I'm the most important. I'm the closest to Jesus. We know there was a hierarchy, right? We know that there was an inner group of three that were especially close to Jesus, James, John, and Peter, okay? Sons of Thunder and The Rock, okay? They were the tightest, okay? They were the closest. Of those, John was described as the one whom Jesus loved, in the book of John, which is an interesting notation, okay? So we know that there's three that are really, really tight, and then, and then we know that there's probably another eight that are really, really, really close, and we know that one is a traitor, and that turns out bad for him, and kind of bad for Jesus, but kind of good for us, okay? But we know that there's a hierarchy, and so they're like, who among us is number one? The opposite of humility, who among us is the best? Who's the goat? And Jesus takes a child and says, no, if you don't get it like this, you don't get it. If you don't become like this, you don't get it. And you know all about how the first century viewed children and how revolutionary it was for Jesus to call out a child and elevate a child's value. Furthermore, Jesus says, if you cause someone who is childlike in their faith, I think might be the argument, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sing, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, that's kind of an intriguing consequence, okay? It's kind of like, okay, we're either going to do this to you or we're going to do this to you. And you're like, I'll take the millstone. So obviously, Jesus is pretty serious about this idea. In fact, clearly through this text, there is powerful, powerful, powerful negative consequences that Jesus relies on, argues for, puts out there. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, unless you become small, unless you get small, See, the opposite is that we want to get big. Especially when we have something to prove. We talked about this before, right? You've heard me say this, okay? 
I like to get big, okay? I like to spit words. I like to get big. A little aggression comes up. Okay? A little, little bit of emotion comes up. Voice changes. The dark side of it, my pupils get really dilated. Okay, If it's really in a bad place, the pupils get dilated and I get really, really, really aggressive in my eyes. I get really big. We tend to want to get big. We tend to want to get our way. We tend to want to push in. Jesus says, get small. Jesus isn't saying we should become a worm. But it is understanding what is important. And being great, being big, isn't important in the kingdom of heaven. Being small is. And it's applicable to the person who has much as it is to the person who has little. Now, it's important because some of us have unique gifts, right? Okay, I see a variety of different people. I know some of your stories, some of your stories that I don't know. Some of you I know to be excellent executives. Some of you I know have the capability of making above average money. Some of you have the ability to intersect with people at a unique level. Some of you have the ability to teach. Some of you have many of these abilities, right? Some of you have the ability to bring peace to a difficult situation. Some of you stand in the line of fire when the bad guys are shooting back. This isn't saying we don't use the gifts and the abilities that God has given us to execute what God wants us to do in our sphere of influence. What this is saying and arguing for don't think that that's what makes you great. The gifts and skills and abilities that we have that we should use to further the kingdom of heaven, use them. Use them. But don't think that's what makes you great. And, and don't think getting big is pleasing to God. Become small. Get small. This is even more challenging if you're a big person. Like if you're a tall person, you're like, well, should I apologize for my statue? No, you shouldn't, but you have a double challenge on your hand. Sorry, my friend, you're tall and you're big. You have a bigger problem than I do, and I have a big problem. Get small. Become like a child. There's also this flavor, right? The last couple verses of this opening little story about what greatness looks like. There's this flavor of how my behavior affects someone else. How your behavior affects someone else. And if your behavior has the potential of affecting a little one in a negative manner, impairing their faith, 
Jesus says you might want to think about that. You might want to really seriously evaluate your behavior and, and, and think about the effect that it has on other people. Because if there's a chance that our behavior were to affect a little one, whatever that means, okay? And we can talk about what that means if you want to, okay? But I don't want to get bogged down to in what a little one means. Because then that's saying, well, what's the little one? No, 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 the challenge is the behavior. The challenge is self. The challenge is how do I position myself in relationship to another person, whoever that person might be. And what does greatness look like? Greatness is not big and impressive. Greatness is small. Greatness is thinking about how my behavior affects another individual. Stating it in the negative what are the things that I don't want to do that would potentially harm someone else? Which we might also argue, we can state it in the positive, what do we want to do? Hence the question on the mirror written in your lipstick, well, maybe not your lipstick, but someone in your house's lipstick, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven today? Text goes on. Second chunk, answering the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Isn't there a title of a book out there today, What If Jesus Was Serious? I think there's a whole series of them. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands, two feet, to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The temptation to sin. If your foot leads you to a spot, cut it off. If your hand reaches out to do something wrong, whack it off. If your eye looks at something that it shouldn't look at, take it out. Strong words. We often ask the question, what if Jesus was serious? But I don't think we take Jesus as serious in these questions, right? Because, forgive me for pushing too far, all of you got your eyes and your hands and your feet be included. I should be blind and rolling around in a wheelchair. And I say it as a joke, but I also say it because it's true. Who is great in the kingdom of heaven 
It's someone who's absolutely ruthless when it comes to sin. And I know people who are like, yes, I'm ruthless when it comes to sin, but it's someone else's sin that I'm ruthless with. I'm ruthless with your sin, not with my sin. But the fine point in the text is ruthlessness with my sin. I'm not cutting your hand off. I'm not cutting your foot off. I'm not plucking your eye out. It's something that I'm doing to me. I'm ruthless with my sin because I recognize that I am the problem. It's not someone external to me. It's me. Ruthless with sin. Confession of sin. It's one of the things that's been, and I'm not pitching Tuesday mornings, okay, but one of the things that's been so helpful for me with the Tuesday morning opportunity. It's that on a weekly basis, I, I verbally ask God to confess my sin. And you don't have to do it on Tuesday morning at Timberwood Church. I'm not, I'm not arguing for that, okay? But I'm saying there is power in saying, I have sinned against you. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself, and I am truly sorry. Please forgive me. There is power in being that honest, and equally there is power then in hearing the words of Christ, you are forgiven. And perhaps we come from a faith tradition where confession of sin or going into the confessional booth was a negative thing or a negative experience or we didn't understand it, and I get some of that. And no, I don't believe you have to go to a pastor or a priest to confess your sins and receive forgiveness. No. No. But but verbally confessing my sin, being ruthless with my sin, Why wouldn't we be ruthless with our sin? Our sin is ruthless with us. Our sin absolutely destroys us. It eats away at our lives. It makes us big when we should be small. It makes us arrogant when we should be humble. It tempts us into all sorts of directions. Why would we be kind to our sin? Why wouldn't we be ruthless with our sin? Jesus answers the question. You want to know what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like? It looks like a person who is absolutely ruthless when it comes to their personal sin. Moving quickly. Third story. Third paracope, if you will. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, what does little ones mean? Person that is young to the faith, sure, person who's marginalized, yes. Rightfully, the church has looked at these and, and has engaged in, in, in behavior that would seek to feed the poor and, and help the sick and clothe individuals. It would, it would um, behavior that would um, take care of the food shelf that exists up in Pequot Lakes that, that feeds people who don't have enough coming out of verses like this, Okay paying attention. Do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels, and I just love this phrase. I didn't pay attention to it until I read it this week. 
For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And as you think about it, right, the Bible talks about regions having angels and churches having angels. We get that from, I think, Daniel, and then we get it from Revelation. And here we see that these little ones, right, the marginalized, the forgotten, the individuals who maybe are new to faith, are, are, are questioning whether or not God might love them, they have angels that see the face of the Father. And we don't get anything more than that. And we're left to hypothesize about what might that mean. What do you think, Jesus asked the question, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There's an incredibly complex system in play the marginalized, the least, the, the forgotten, the person, the little one, the person who might think, I don't know that God could really love me. That there's no way, the person that might think, there's no place in God's economy of things for an individual like me. One of the little ones. What I don't think the text is talking about, I don't think the text is talking about the person who's mad at the church, who leaves the church and expects someone to beg, plead for them to come back to the church and then is upset when no one seems to realize that they are gone. I don't think that's little one behavior. I think that kind of behavior is the height of arrogance. When I get a letter that says, Timberwood Church no longer meets my needs, I go, oh, really? That's the purpose of the church? To meet your needs. The church exists for you. But the church doesn't meet your needs. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think that's what the church is supposed to do. I think we're called to be a part of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ and as individuals who are followers of Christ who have any experience at all in the kingdom of heaven would probably never, ever, ever say something as preposterous as the church doesn't meet my needs. Now, if you want to say the church in doctrinal error, okay, I can buy that one. If you want to say the church is elevating the work of Satan over the work of Jesus Christ, if you want to say the church is elevating the work of an evil entity over the work of the Holy Spirit, yeah, I'm leaving a church because of doctrinal error. But I don't think the text is talking about that. I think more than likely the text is talking about a person that really is scared silly to walk through the door on a Sunday morning and is so afraid someone will call them out for who they know themselves to be. The marginalized, the forgotten, the person who comes in shabby clothes, the person who comes just racked with mental illness. 
the individual who's getting free from addiction, the individual who's just, just starting to explore the claims of faith, just starting to believe that, that, that God loves them enough. that they matter to God. And I think the challenge for Timberwood or any church, for any individual, is to see the people that are invisible and and to attempt to move them closer to the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is the ability to see the person that no one else sees and care about their soul. Jesus says that's what greatness looks like. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you or your sister, I think, we can go brother and sisters, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, she does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he or she refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and he or she refuses to listen to the church, here's where we see that word ecclesia, right? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. I'm going to move quickly here. Um, brother sins against you. Obviously, greatness in the kingdom of heaven. If a brother sins against you, if a sister sins against you, you don't seek retribution, you seek restoration. But that's a radically different perspective. You don't try to get even or ahead. You try to restore the relationship. You try to go to the individual and figure out where it went sideways. And then I love this phrase, right? Where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus. Greatness. It's not in demonstrable skill. It's not in a big group of people. It's the smallest of gatherings in the name of Jesus. That's what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Two or three gathered in the name of Jesus. And then the biggest chunk of what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like is our last few verses. Verse 21. Then Peter, the rock, Rocky, came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Great question. As many as seven times. Now, this is unique because the rabbinic tradition would have said three times, okay? If someone does the same thing to you three times, Peter's like, okay, I'll take the three, I'll double it and add one. Seven, number of perfection, all this stuff. Jesus is like, no. I did not say to you seven times, but 77 times or seven times 70, or we're not totally sure exactly how the Greek translates but it's at least 10 more times than seven. And then he tells a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts and his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, the number is like, the number is like if I owed you $1 trillion, okay? It's just like absolute, there's just no way. There's just no way, okay? I, how would I owe you $1 trillion? 
I could be the United States government. I'm kidding. Okay, therefore the kingdom of heaven. Okay, when he began to settle, one was brought who owed him 10,000 talents. This crazy number, right? Just this crazy number. Like the GDP of a large country, right? And it's probably, yeah, fair enough. And since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience, I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master said, fine, you're forgiven. Debt, strike, done, over. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A fraction, like a fraction of a big number. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Pay what you owe! The little thumbs in his voice box. His fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I'll pay, pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now the other servants saw what had taken place and they were really bummed out. And so they're like, you know, we got to do something about this, right? And so they go to the master. Now should they have gone to the servant based on what just happened in Matthew 18, 15, 16, 17? Okay, that, that, just don't push the story farther than it should go. They're bummed out. And so they go to the master and they're like, hey, this guy that you did a solid for, he just really, really, really did a bad thing. So the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forget your brother or your sister from your heart. We can get lost in the details. We can get lost in the extremes. It's probably not a picture of the final judgment, okay? And likewise, we can think about the extremes. Well, you know, would I have to forgive? Say that, say that someone had, you know, and we come up with these elaborate, like, insert your most terrible world leader, dictator, you know, person from history, okay? Or say a person who's a mass murderer who, you know, and we, we, we create these elaborate, elaborate, would I have to forgive that person? Stop. Don't miss the larger point. Forgiveness describes the characteristic of being great. <laughs> That's under appeal right now, I believe, by the Supreme Court. Is it appeal or just being challenged? I think it's just being challenged. Do we have a heart that is capable of forgiving? And what we find, along with forgiveness, is this tour de force from the voice box of Jesus of what the heart of a great human looks like.
Now, there's some caveats, I think, that should be in play when we think about chapter 18. There's some really, really, really strong consequences. Jesus is saying you would rather have a millstone than accept what will happen to a person that causes a little one to stumble. Okay, that's a pretty strong consequence. Cutting off a hand, cutting off an arm, cutting out an eye, that's a pretty strong consequence. This, this last story, I mean, this is an incredibly strong consequence, right? An, an individual whose heart is characterized by unforgiveness will be unforgiven by God. That's about as stiff as it gets. Is there a difference between dabbling in some of these things and embracing some of these things? I don't mean dabbling intentionally. Is there a difference between doing evil and being evil? And I think if we're honest, at least if I'm honest, there is this reality that in some ways... I try to be small, and in some ways, I resist temptation, and in some ways, I really care about the people who don't know Christ. In fact, a person who wonders if Christ would really love them, I want to talk to that person just about more than anything else in the world. And I try to really live by the reality that if I have a problem with you, I'll go directly to you and say, how can we figure this out? And I try to really, really live by the premise of having a heart that is characterized by forgiveness. But I also know sometimes I get big. And sometimes I yield to temptation. And sometimes I don't see the marginalized person. And sometimes I don't have an honest conversation with the person I'm jammed up with. And sometimes, especially in the short term, I can be pretty unforgiven. Does that mean that I'm outside the kingdom of heaven? And I don't want to too quickly say no. I want to allow the seriousness of Christ's word to land hard on me. But I also know this, and a friend of mine helped me this last week. We've talked about orthodoxy, okay? Right belief, straight belief, okay? He said, you've no doubt heard about orthodoxy. I'm like, yes, I've heard about orthodoxy. Okay, you don't need to explain it to me. He's like, I'm sure you've heard about orthopraxy or orthopraxis. And I'm like, yes, I've heard about orthopraxy. And then he's like, have you heard about the other one? Because it's not a two-legged stool. And I'm like, you have my attention. He's like, it's a, um, I think he used the word neod neologism. A neologism, is that the word I want? It's kind of like a combination of different stuff. He's like, have you heard of the phrase orthopathos? So right or straight 
emotion or right or straight affection. And I'm like, you got me. Tell me more. Because sometimes I wonder if I'm thinking the right way. And sometimes I wonder if I'm doing the right thing. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. But when he described orthopathos, right feeling, right affection, there was almost a sense of lightness and joy. Because I can truly say to you, even though sometimes I think the wrong things, and maybe even have a messed up theology in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes I certainly do the wrong things. My heart's cry is to follow the God of the universe. My heart's cry is to be aligned with the wishes of the Father expressed through the Son, aided by the Holy Spirit. And it made me smile. And it made me cry. Not because of anything that I've done, but because I believe that God has drawn the affections of my heart in such a way that I can truly say, I love him. I challenge you with that. Go to your groups. We have some questions. Blame me for the ones you don't like. Peace.